0: let's step into the dark corners of history, shall we? Today, we delve into the tales that have forever marked Massachusetts, for better or worse. Today, we take a peek through two infamous chapters, the Salem Witch Trials and the Bridgewater Triangle. Join me as I attempt to unravel these eerie stories, stories that leave many more questions than answers, much like where do socks go after you wash them? where fact meets folklore in a land steeped in both darkness and intrigue. Are you ready to confront the shadows of Massachusetts past? Do you believe in ghosts? Join me on a journey through America's dark and haunted past as we explore the ghost stories and folklore that have been passed down for generations. What scares you? Let's find out. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. In the late 1600s, Salem Village in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, now Danvers, Massachusetts, was a small community suffering from internal strife and political instability. The leading families were divided and the villagers had conflicting opinions about their new pastor, Samuel Parris. Soon after, some girls from the village, two of them being related to Paris, started behaving oddly and having seizures they accused somebody of bewitching them. This sparked a series of trials fueled by hysteria and factional animosity that had led to more allegations being made. The Salem Witch Trials of 1692 were just one part of a long history of witch hunts, which began in Europe in the 1300s and ended with an execution in Switzerland in 1782. The highest number of trials and executions occurred between 1580 and 1640, mainly in Western Germany, the Low Countries, France, Northern Italy, and Switzerland. Estimates indicate that 110,000 people were put on trial for witchcraft-related matters, with 40 to 60,000 ultimately being executed. During the hunts, people were looked into to determine whether they were witches rather than just hunting down witches. Witchcraft was thought to involve a pact with Satan, calling upon demons to do magic and the ability to transform from humans into animals or other people. Additionally, it was thought these magicians traveled together in flight and held secret gatherings. Even though some did adhere to the devil and attempt magical powers for evil, no single person ever fulfilled all the conceptions of a witch. In the early days of witch hunting, Suspicions and rumor led to accusations, often leading to convictions and executions. In a vacuum of political authority, a combination of church politics, family feuds, and hysterical children led to the Salem Witch Trials and executions. In the late 17th century, Massachusetts Bay had two Salems. There was Salem Town, a vibrant harbor city known for its commerce activities, and there was Salem Village, situated about 10 miles inland from the former. The village comprised around 500 impoverished farmers that was divided by social class, mainly between the well-established porters associated with Salem Town's wealthy merchants and their other less fortunate peers. Property disputes were common in these parts, and so too was litigation. Samuel Paris a Boston merchant who had previously studied theology at Harvard College, which is now Harvard University, was appointed the pastor of Salem Village's Congregational Church in 1689 through the Putnam's family influence, who were a very influential family from Salem Village. Along with his wife and three children, he brought to Salem a niece and two slaves of uncertain origin, John Indian and Tituba. Some researchers argue that they were of African descent while others think they could have been either Caribbean or had Native American roots. Paris wisely reached an agreement with the congregation about his employment. Yet he soon looked for increased remuneration, including becoming the owner of the parsonage, which many members of the congregation viewed negatively. His traditional Puritan doctrines and sermons caused a schism within Salem, with some in favor and others not. This division became more evident when Paris required those not part of his congregation to leave before communion was served. Paris's daughter Betty, who was nine years old, and his niece Abigail Williams, who was 11, and Ann Putnam Jr., age 12, probably began indulging in fortune-telling as a result of voodoo tales to Buddha told them. It was in January of 1692 that Betty and Abigail began to exhibit increasingly strange behavior, described by some historians as just juvenile delinquency. In addition to screams and strange sounds, they threw things, contorted themselves, and complained of biting and pinching sensations. Now reflecting through the lens of modern science, some scholars think a mix of asthma, Lyme disease, epilepsy, child abuse, delusional psychosis, or ergotism may have caused the strange behavior. The latter being a condition produced when someone eats bread or cereal with rye infected by the fungus ergot. That includes nausea, choking fits, and can cause altered states of awareness and sensations of things crawling on the skin. It's important to note that LSD derives from the ergot fungus. Though such physiological and psychological theories fail to explain the spread of this odd conduct among young females in Salem Village around that time, it appears similar to what was described regarding a family from Boston who was suspected of being bewitched in 1688, as documented by Cotton Mather in memorable provinces relating to witchcraft and possessions from 1689. In February of 1692, Dr. William Griggs, who was unable to medically clarify the girl's behavior, suggested supernatural forces had afflicted them. This motivated Tatuba to bake a so-called witch cake, using urine from some victims to uncover details of who administered these strange events. Unfortunately, without success. Shock. Now, faced with pressure from Paris, Betty and Abigail accused Tatuba, Sarah Good, who was a beggar, and Sarah Osborne, an elderly bedridden woman who had a romantic relationship with an indentured servant of bewitchment. On March 1st, two magistrates from Salem Town, John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin, arrived to start a public inquiry. Despite defending their innocence, Sarah Good pointed out Osborne's guilt. Initially, Tatuba also professed her innocence, but was eventually coerced by the magistrates into confessing that the devil had visited her, in order to sign his book. During the three-day testimony, she revealed details about her meetings with Satan's animal familiars, as well as an unknown tall, dark man from Boston who had shown her seven other names that she could not read. The magistrates had a confession, which they accepted as evidence of further activity of witches in their midst. This, along with the spread of hysteria, led to more girls and young women experiencing fits. Anne Putnam Jr., her mother, her cousin Mary Walcott, and the Putnam servant Mary Lewis were among those affected. Notably, the accused now included respected members of society, such as Rebecca Nurse, leading to an escalation in weeks that saw many who'd been wronged by the Putnams brought before them as accusers in numerous cases. At the end of May 1962, nope, that's weird, 1692, I guess I'm dyslexic, that explains a lot. Anyway, imagine this happened in the 60s? Let me try again. At the end of May 1692, Sir William Phipps, governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, called for a formal tribunal. It was to be held in Salem Town and presided over by William Stoughton, the colony's lieutenant governor. This extraordinary court allowed the use of spectral evidence, claims by the victims that their assailant was the devil in disguise. Not only were those accused denied counsel, but the proceedings were accompanied by withering and whimpering from the accusers at every turn. The punishment put upon those who stubbornly refused to admit any guilt was much harder than those who confessed and named other witches. This was because of the Puritan views that God would take care of them if they repented. Many in the community saw these events as wrongdoings, but kept silent fearing they would also be accused of witchcraft if they voiced an objection. On June 2nd, Bridget Bishop, who had been unjustly accused of witchery and formally exonerated, was found guilty, leading to her being hanged on June 10th at what would become known as Gallows Hill in Salem Village. Five more of the defendants were judicially put to death on July 19th, including Rebecca Nurse and Sarah Good. Burroughs was called from his residence in Maine and claimed to be the chief of these witches. Yet he was convicted along with four others and executed on August 19th. As Burroughs stood on the gallows, he recited the Lord's Prayer faultlessly. This caused some doubt regarding his culpability among witnesses. Yet Mather, who was present on this particular occasion, actively negated those protests due to his conflicting involvement in the trials. The fate of Martha Corey and her elderly husband, Giles, provided a tragic end to their story. Martha was hanged along with the seven other people on September 22nd, whereas Giles, who had been subjected to the pene Forte de Dure, oh boy, strong and harsh punishment is basically what that means, that saw him crushed beneath heavy stones for two days until his death. There were accusations spread through other communities, including Beverly, Malden, Gloucester, Andover, Lynn, Marblehead, Charlestown, and Boston as these trials progressed pretty much everywhere in Massachusetts. Just say that. That's easier. Increase Mather, Cotton Mather's father. Increase, that's not a name you hear a lot anymore. Hey, that's my buddy. That's my fellow. That's, that's uh, Dave and uh, his brother, Increase. Hmm. Well, weird names back then. Anywho, Increase Mather was Cotton Mather's father and the president of Harvard. He condemned the use of spectral evidence on October 3rd and favored direct accusations instead. See? Well, that's a weird name, but guy's got a head on his shoulders. The devil never assists men to do supernatural things, he said, when therefore such like things shall be testified against the accused party, not by specters, which are devils in the shape of persons either living or dead, but by real men or women who may be credited. It is proof enough that such a one has that a testament to a conversation and correspondence with the devil, as that he or she, whoever they may be, ought to be exterminated from among men. This notwithstanding, I will add, it were better that than ten suspected witches should escape, than that one innocent person should be condemned. That's a mouthful increase, but we're on the same page. Governor Phipps had to intervene again in October as the witch hunt's accusations encompassed his own wife, and he put a stop to the court of Oyer and Terminer. To take its place, Phipps established a superior court of judicature that could not use spectral evidence. Despite this, trials were held in January and February, but just three people were convicted, all of whom were pardoned by the governor by May of 1693, when this whole ordeal came to a close. 19 individuals had been executed, and five more, excluding Giles Corey, died while entertainment. In the years to come, many individuals and institutions expressed their remorse concerning the trials. In January 1697, Massachusetts General Court declared a day of fasting in remembrance of the injustice that happened. Samuel Sewell, one of the judges, publicly recognized his mistake at this point in time. Five years later, Ann Putnam Jr., an accuser, offered her apology. The Commonwealth cleared 22 of the 33 convicted individuals in 1711 and compensated the victims' families. In 1957, Massachusetts officially apologized for the incident. However, it was not until 2001 that all of those found guilty were vindicated. The abuses of the Salem witch trial contributed to changes in the American court procedure, such as the guarantee of legal representation, the right to cross examine one's accuser, and the presumption of innocent over guilt. These events and their metaphorical power concerning the discrimination of minorities have lasted through to the 20th and 21st centuries, due to playwright Arthur Miller's use in The Crucible. As we pay homage to the days of the Salem witch trials, it is wise to recall that history serves as a strong teaching tool. It makes us aware of our vulnerabilities with reason, how unfounded doubts can work against us and why it is essential to uphold our freedoms. When something unexpected happens or a situation appears unclear, let us be guided by understanding and not be so quick to accept the belief of witchcraft. We must also apply wisdom in seeking truth and fostering empathy instead of succumbing to unsubstantiated assumptions born in naivety. Ultimately, when it all comes down to it, awareness and sympathy will grant us immunity from obscurity. I came off really preachy. Just be a good person. Hey folks, just wanted to stop here and say, uh, how's it going? And thank everybody for every week. Listen, it's not going to be an episode that I don't thank you guys. So, get used to it. But I'm not going to drag on with the thank yous. Just thank you a lot and keep them coming. Um, I want to let everybody know that my other show Zoning Out. Its uh, season two premiere is going to be this week. So, check out that. I'd love for you guys to come on over and hang out with me. Listen to us uh, talk about Twilight Zone and just, just a lot of fun um the phone number oh man the phone number has been so great the voicemails that you guys have been leaving all the stories you've been sharing i'm gonna compile a bunch of them and, and, and make an episode and i think i said that already but yeah that's what i'm gonna do i also want to let you guys know my youtube channel that's up and running um not much on there right now i think i just visited six flags when it opened and i went to some six flags uh great adventure here in jersey they did uh a scream break thing when they first opened like a kind of a a fright fest light I just kind of do like a quick review of that but this weekend um when is it is it the August oh boy this is I should have been prepared August um 18th 19th and 20th in Atlantic City New Jersey at the Showboat Casino it's not a casino anymore the Showboat just a hotel now or a convention center anyway At the showboat will be um, the New Jersey Horror Convention. So I'm going to be there. I'm not, I don't have like a panel or a table or anything. I'm just going to be there just kind of making a video and reviewing it and walking around and talking to people and doing little interviews. So if you're there, look out for me. I should, I'll probably have a Haunted American History shirt on and come say hello. And uh, yeah. I think I'm going to be, I have like a press pass, so I'm going to be like just interviewing people and making content for YouTube. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. So New Jersey Horror Convention, August 18th, 19th, and 20th. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'll definitely be there Saturday and Sunday. I'm not sure about Friday because I do still have a day job, unfortunately. Um, Well, actually very fortunate. There's people out there who don't have a day job. and I'm very fortunate for what I have. So I take that back, I'm sorry. But anyway, I'll be in Atlantic City. I'll be at the showboat for the New Jersey Horror Convention, and uh, I'll be hanging out and walking around and saying hello. So if you see me, if you're there, um, come say hello. And uh, we'll shake hands. We'll take a photo, and I'll post them on social media, and you'll be part of my YouTube channel and my YouTube video. And you'll just be my friend, and that's what I like. Friends. The links for all the things I mentioned will be in the show's description. All right, folks. Thanks so much. Um yeah, let's uh, continue with Massachusetts. Love you guys. Later. In 1983, hey, the was born, cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman published Mysterious America, a book in which he described a 200 square mile area in southern Massachusetts with a long history of strange, paranormal, and sometimes sinister activities. The Triangle includes a number of locations known for unexplained occurrences, the most notable of which is the legendary Hockomock Swamp and the famous Freetown Fall River State Forest. Using the dots between Abington, Freetown, and Rehoboth in order to reveal the Triangle's traditional borders, the Triangle is divided into three parts. There are a lot of reports of strange happenings, baffling mysteries, and sinister deeds in the area. One of the world's most diverse hotspots for paranormal activity is the Bridgewater Triangle, home to ghostly hauntings, cryptid animal sightings, UFO encounters, and evidence of satanic ritual sacrifices. Yeesh. The inland Bridgewater Triangle is likely one of the world's most concentrated areas of paranormal activity, Though it's not recognized as an official vile vortex, a term that I'm going to explore in detail later on in another episode of this podcast. This 200 square mile area is located just 30 miles south of Boston, and with the Massachusetts towns of Abington, Freetown, and Rehoboth making up the points of the triangle, sitting right square in the middle is Bridgewater. The Triangle contains quite a few notable areas that are worth mentioning. Like I mentioned before, the Hockamock Swamp. Spanning over 5,000 acres, it lies in the western section of the Bridgewater Triangle and is renowned for its abundance of paranormal reports. This area also holds an ancient secret, being the site of an 8,000-year-old Native American burial ground. When archaeologists opened the grave on this grassy island, a peculiar phenomenon occurred. Red oka from within the tombs bubbled and mysteriously disappeared, leaving them puzzled. Additionally, photographs taken during the excavation inexplicably failed to develop, adding to the eerie aura surrounding the swamp. Steeped in superstition, the Hakamuk Swamp has earned the ominous title of The Place Where Spirits Dwell according to the Wampanoag tribe of the Native American Algonquian Nation. Their avoidance of the area further adds to the sense of foreboding that hangs over the region, perpetuating the allure of this mysterious and haunting place. Located on the banks of the Taunton River, Dyden Rocks stands opposite the grassy island burial grounds within Hakamuk Swamp. This peculiar rock surface is adorned with numerous inscriptions whose origins remain a mystery. Despite various speculations suggesting Native Americans, Vikings, and even Phoenicians as potential creators, the true identity behind these bizarre carvings remains elusive and has never been definitively determined. Profile Rock, situated in Freetown and part of the Bridgewater Triangle, has earned a paranormal reputation over the years. Far from a nearby hill, one can observe a distinct portrait of a Native American face gazing outward from the stone. Revered long before the arrival of Massachusetts colonists, the Wampanoag people held Profile Rock in sacred regard. Local legends have woven captivating tales suggesting that Native American ghost dancers clad in warrior attire continue to dance around Profile Rock, adding to its mystique and allure. Anaheim Rock positioned within Hakamuk Swamp along Route 44 in Rehoboth, bears the name of Chief Anawan and holds historical significance as the site where he surrendered to the colonists, marking the end of King Philip's War. It's going to be a miracle if I can pronounce half of these things. It's, I set myself up for failure. According to legend, the restless spirits of Chief Anawan's warriors still linger in the area, manifesting spectral fires and engaging in ethereal ghost dancing imparting an eerie and haunting aura to the location. Lauren Coleman, who was a prominent paranormal researcher and who coined the term Bridgewater Triangle in the 1970s, played a significant role in rekindling public interest in the area's numerous paranormal reports. What makes the Bridgewater Triangle truly remarkable is not only the abundance and variety of paranormal accounts, but also the fact that the earliest report of such activity dates back over three centuries to 1760, on the morning of May 10th, 1760, an extraordinary event unfolded when a peculiar sphere of fire appeared over New England, emitting an intense light that cast shadows into the bright morning sun. Witnesses from both Bridgewater and Roxbury reported this bizarre sight. Since that time, the region has become a hotbed of diverse paranormal reports, spanning from ghostly dancers to sightings of UFOs and encounters with cryptic creatures. It all began in the spring of 1760 when the tranquil morning sky was disrupted by an astonishing sight. A sphere of fire hovering over the New England landscape. Its brilliance was so intense that it cast a peculiar shadow over on top of the morning sun. The reports of this spread like wildfire, marking what could possibly be the earliest documented UFO sighting on the entire planet. Little did the people of Bridgewater know that this was only the beginning of a long and mysterious journey into the unknown. Over the years, the Bridgewater Triangle continued to be the place to be for peculiar incidents involving unidentified flying objects. On a chilling Halloween night in 1908, the local newspapers were abuzz with accounts of another UFO sighting, lighting up the sky with its otherworldly presence. Fast forward to 1968, when five startled witnesses claimed to have encountered a mysterious bowl of light floating among the trees in a secluded area in Rehoboth. Their minds were forever marked by the strange spectacle they had beheld. The 1970s became a time of frequent UFO sightings within different corners of the Bridgewater Triangle. It seemed that the skies above this mystical land were a playground for the unexplained. One memorable report from 1976 spoke of two UFOs boldly landing along Route 44 near Taunton, leaving witnesses in awe and wonderment. As the years rolled on, even law enforcement officers were drawn into the puzzling web of the Bridgewater Triangle. In 1994, a Bridgewater law enforcement officer reported witnessing a triangular-shaped craft adorned with red and white lights, defying the laws of aviation and defying explanation. But it wasn't just the skies that held secrets in the Bridgewater Triangle. The town of Rainham has its share of puzzling phenomena. Reports flooded in about glowing balls of light gracefully floating over the ground near a local dog track, leaving residents and visitors alike bewildered and intrigued. Cryptozoological sightings are abundant and diverse within the Bridgewater Triangle. In 1970, reports of a seven-foot-tall, Bigfoot-like creature covered in hair along with its intriguing footprints, prompted both the Bridgewater and Massachusetts State Police canine units to embark on a search for a potential bear. However, despite their efforts, neither man nor bear was ever found. In 1978, Joseph M. DeAndrade, a paranormal researcher, claimed to have witnessed another such creature slowly making its way into the brush of Hakamook Swamp, approximately 200 yards away from its location. He documented this fascinating sighting in his 1997 book, Passing Strange True Tales of New England Hauntings and Horror. Not all the alleged creatures within the Bridgewater Triangle are confined to the land. Since 1971, numerous sightings of extraordinarily large black birds with wingspans stretching from 8 to 12 feet have been reported. Interestingly, the first of these sightings originated from Bird Hill in the Hockamuck Swamp. In 1984, Two of these avian creatures were reported seen engaged in a mid-air battle, adding to the intrigue lore of the region. Amidst the legends of the Native American ghost dancers, the Bridgewater Triangle also holds accounts of contemporary ghostly specters that send shivers down the spines of those who hear their tales. On the desolate stretch of Route 44 in Rehoboth, a mysterious red-headed hitchhiker is set to linger, waiting for an unsuspecting traveler to offer to give them a ride but as quickly as they appear, the ghostly figure vanishes, leaving behind an eerie air of uncertainty. In the heart of Huckamuck Swamp, near Route 138, another spectral presence is set to roam. Witnesses have reported encountering a ghostly phantom whose ethereal form sends chills down their spines as if they have crossed paths with something not of this world. From the town of Freetown, a chilling legend spreads about a ghostly trucker who haunts the winding roads of Copacut Road. The spirit of the trucker is rumored to speed along the darkened path, blaring his horn and ominously threatening any passing motorists who dare to cross his otherworldly route. These tales of ghostly encounters add another dimension to the mysteries of the Bridgewater Triangle, where the boundaries between the living and the afterlife seem to blur, leaving a lasting impression on those who dare to explore its haunted domains. The Bridgewater Triangle with its rich history of unexplained sightings and encounters, became a beacon for UFO enthusiasts and paranormal researchers from far and wide. The allure of this mysterious land persisted, and its mysteries remain unsolved, inviting those daring enough to delve into this realm of the extraordinary. And so the legend of the Bridgewater Triangle continued to grow, leaving its mark on the minds of all who dared to venture into its perplexing embrace. Diving into the history of the Salem Witch Trials and the Bridgewater Triangle unveils a captivating blend of two tales, eerily woven into New England's spectral tapestry. Amidst the swirling mist of uncertainty, one undeniable truth stands tall. These haunting riddles persist, much like that one missing sock after laundry day. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, exploring those historical puzzles will either give you chills or make you appreciate modern problem-solving. After all, who knew that even centuries later, ghosts and lost socks would continue to haunt us in their own inexplicable ways? Has anyone seen my socks? I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History hi poopy i just want to tell you i love you and i love your podcast and i'm so proud of everything you're doing and you're so spooky okay i love you bye Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform, or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM podcast network and check out hometown ghost stories if you're brave enough.